The reading this morning is from James chapter 2, verses 5 to 17. James 2, 5 to 17. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonoured the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfil the royal law prescribed in the prescriptions, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favouritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he... For, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brother, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith? but does not have works. Can such faith faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Thanks, Lee. Well, good morning. I'm uh, honoured to have Teresa with us uh, this morning from Compassion and uh, a couple of others who are helping us think about how we might serve um, uh, uh, impoverished children in the Philippines. And so I look forward to uh, finishing the service in that way. We brought the sermon forward to, uh, to give space for that. And uh, as I was thinking about how I might speak to uh, today being Compassion Sunday, uh, I landed on James chapter 2, which in many ways, as you'll see, will actually flow on from what we heard last week. But uh, let me start by asking you this question. What is Christianity's most distinctive contribution to the world? Hmm. What do you reckon? We could make it not rhetorical. How about we do that? <laughs> well, I had some memory. What do we, what do we reckon? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Who said that? Good Christian. I absolutely agree with that, but it's not the answer. <laughs> what do you think? Jesus? Yes, also yes and no. <laughs> Whoa. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Social justice. Uh, the answer to this question, according to Teresa Morgan, professor of Greco-Roman history at the University of Oxford, uh, she's smarter than me, um, I like her answer, she says charity. Uh, now, I like that we answered kind of Jesus and forgiveness because that is absolutely the biggest contribution that Christianity, that Jesus has to offer because without him, there is no life now or eternal. And yet, as the world looks upon Christianity and you look at the impact that Christianity has made on the world... The lens in which that's viewed is through this. We all are sensitive to hypocrites, those who kind of say they love Jesus but don't love people. But when people love others genuinely at a great cost to themselves, that makes an impact. And hence this answer, charity. It's interesting to think that uh, the most confusing aspect about Christianity is perhaps good works and charity. 
Uh, I'm actually meeting with a man at the moment as we walk through Mark's gospel and he explores kind of Christianity. He keeps asking me the, the, the question that kind of someone asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And as we look at kind of this being perhaps the greatest contribution that Christianity has made to the world, uh, then the answer might be good works. What must I do to be saved? Do good works. Be like Jesus. Has anyone nailed that yet, by the way? Hmm. I will come to that actually later on. Uh, so how might we combine our understanding that we are saved by faith and through grace and yet the call to do good works? Well, on this Compassion Sunday, I want us to continue to explore the fruit of Christ. Do you remember last week we had the picture of the vine and looked at John 15 where we summarized it as, in Jesus Christ, remain and bear fruit. Uh, I actually took a, a, a kind of a cutting, oh, it wasn't a cut, it was like a whole branch that I ripped out, uh, and, uh, and I said that if, if, if we're not in Christ, then we're, then we're dead. Uh, that is actually now at the front of my house looking rather decrepit, I should have brought it in. Um, don't be like that branch, remain in Christ and bear his fruit. And particularly today, I want to focus on how we might bear that fruit uh, in mercy and charity, and especially to the poor. Let us begin, uh, keep James chapter 2 open. And uh, let's, let's look at these verses. So the first part of this, uh, heirs of the kingdom, God's heart for the poor. Verse 5, James says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. It's important to kind of see his actual love for the church. James is likely the leader of the church in Jerusalem or, or a key leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, Peter also. Uh, he's also likely to be the brother of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, now, James is known for kind of like, not being backwards in coming, for, not, yeah, not being backwards in coming forwards, um, and he's quite confronting at points. But look at how he actually loves them. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that He has promised to those who love Him? Didn't God choose the poor to be heirs of the kingdom of God? Did he? What does that mean? First thing I want us to sort of see how Scripture is absolutely littered with God's heart for the poor in the way that he calls his people to care for them. Uh, just some of the many passages in the Old Testament particularly. Leviticus 23 might be kind of a, a well-known, you might not know that particular reference, but, but you might know that kind of the, 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 the Jewish people were called to not reap to the edge of the harvest. Why? Again, non-rhetorical. Why were they told to leave a bit at the edge? So, so, so that the poor, the, the sojourners, those that were kind of the foreigners, could actually glean from that and, and, and be fed. It's actually, it's a beautiful picture. Don't kind of milk the earth for all it's worth for your own kind of productivity. Make sure that there is leftovers so, so that those among you who are not as fortunate might be able to eat. Uh, in Zechariah, it says this, uh, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise an evil against another in your heart. In fact, as we go to the very heart of God, it says in Deuteronomy, which we're looking at next week, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, God's heart for the poor is so evident, and He calls His people into His very own heart, so that as he cares for the poor, he might do so especially through his people, even through us. God loves and cares for the poor, especially through his own people. 
I heard it said on a podcast I was listening to a little while ago that a Jew never has to beg. And I suppose that sort of, that little phrase captures that as God's people lived out the heart of God, there ought to be no poor among them. No one struggling because there's always opportunity to serve them and love them. I love that. Have we ever lived that out perfectly? I doubt it. But I love where God is pointing us into his very own heart. Of course, all of this is perfectly embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, that is, he is the Lord Jesus in the glories of heaven, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here is the very heart of the Lord Jesus, who came from riches into poverty to serve us, and so that he could say, Those famous words on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Wealth wealth is a problem that the New Testament calls us to see time and time again. The problem with wealth is not the actual money, it's kind of morally neutral. It's the way we find our satisfaction in it. And when we realize that our hearts can never be satisfied apart from God's presence in our lives, then we're able to place things properly and care for people properly. That this is, it seems to me, and it seems to the Scriptures, that the poor in this life, both poor in circumstances and poor in spirit, are humbled to see the humble Savior more clearly. Let me say that again. The poor in life, both by circumstance and by spirit, are humble to see more clearly the humble Saviour, the one who left the glories of heaven to become poor for our sake, that we might find life in Him. Now, this is not some kind of, you know, call upon the poor and in their desperation kind of lead them to religion as a crutch for them. I mean, sure, that's in part, but that's not actually the thrust of Scripture. I think it's actually rather the rich are looking in the wrong place for their supposed salvation. All the while, God appeared to them to offer life as a humble servant. But they didn't have eyes to see because they were blinded by their wealth and their desire for satisfaction. It seems James' audience was also following the patterns of this world, aspiring to, to greatness and to wealth. He says, you have dishonored the poor, Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? It's kind of both ways. You are dishonoring the poor, and yet also those above you are kind of oppressing you. And it's like you're you're trapped in this kind of middle-class kind of cycle of oppression. As you're oppressed by those above you, don't you also dishonor the poor below you? The sin of the middle class is to presume upon the poor and long for just a little bit more for their comfort. Is that not true? It's like nothing's changed in 2,000 years. (laughs) The sin of the middle class is to presume upon the poor and long for a little bit more for the sake of comfort. But James calls them to account, calls us to account, to not exercise a partiality. So in the part of the beginning of this chapter that uh, wasn't read out for us, uh, James calls them to kind of like this, verse 2, for if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, 
If you look with favor on one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, (laughs) haven't you made distinctions among you? Haven't you revealed your very heart in the way that you've acted? What will break this cycle in human nature? If that's how it was and how it continues to be, what will break this perpetuating oppression? The sin of the middle class. Oxfam, an international charity organization that I'm no doubt we'd be familiar with, has estimated that it would take approximately $60 billion per year to end extreme global poverty. If the top 1% were to tithe, just the top 1% of the world were to tithe 10% of their wealth every year, it would take less than two years to accumulate that amount. You know, it could be that ending global extreme poverty could happen within a number of years, let alone our generation, and yet we don't hold out hope for that, do we? Unfortunately. The problem is this. Firstly, we don't see ourselves in the top 1%, although I would say most of us are, literally. But the real problem is that wealth distribution is not the answer. Because we need to give people an ability to produce and care for themselves. We need to fix the issue of the heart. There is a problem with our heart. God has a heart for the poor and has made himself known among them. Christian charity, love and mercy. What will break the cycle of oppression and poverty? I think James gives us the answer. In fact, Jesus gives us the answer when he says this. Indeed, verse 8, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourselves, you are doing well. (laughs) That is like the understatement of the Bible, right? If you fulfill... The royal law, to love your neighbor as yourselves, you're doing all right. Are you doing all right? How are we going loving our neighbor? We can see that if we all loved our neighbor, not just kind of like we're forced to sort of tax off a portion of our income so that, you know, we could care for those over there, but if we actually loved them, and if they loved those around them and were able to kind of care as well as they were resourced and empowered, could you not see how this would solve world poverty? But again, as we look to that and dare to imagine a life lived in this royal law to love our neighbor as ourselves, we know that we fall short of that. We know we are all guilty when we measure ourselves against the law, especially this royal law. Royal because the King Jesus called us to this and perfected it. He demonstrated it for us. And as we look to him, we go, oh, wow, we are so far short. How might we do that? Again, James helps us. Verse 12, speak and act. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. What is this law of freedom? Christian ethics is not governed simply by law, do this, do that. For the law condemns. It doesn't bring life. Ask any child starting to grow up if the rules of their parents are bringing them life. 
And yet we know that the answer is not no rules at all, is it? I wrote that paragraph during an episode yesterday. <laughs> life comes from God himself, who made life and restores life, but we only have it because he has had mercy upon us. We do not deserve it. We look to the royal law of love. We look to all of God's commandments and we find ourselves short. We look to what this world needs to end things like world poverty and we find ourselves short. And yet God in his justice, in his love, in his calling to us to live out his own heart, knows we have fallen short of his glory and yet holds out mercy. James says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. And friends, if we have received mercy, if we have found ourselves in Christ, ought that not to flow out in the way that we show mercy? James here is summarizing negatively uh, the, the parable of the two debtors. You know, the one that Jesus tells about, uh, you know, a guy who owes uh, quite a bit of money. Uh, and someone else owes him money too, but a lot less. And so when he appeals uh, to the authorities, to the one he owes much to, says, I can't pay you back. And the guy has mercy and says, okay, your debt's forgiven. But then goes down to the little guy, classic middle-class moment, to the one impoverished and says, you owe me everything still, and if you don't give it to me, I'll throw you in jail. Has he not understood what he has received in that debt removed? In that mercy shown, so will it be with us. Friends, if we are bound up with Christ, if we know the mercy of Him, will we not too show mercy? And this is what I said last week. It is the promise of very Jesus Himself that He will bear His fruit in us if we remain in Him. And again, this helps us understand, lest we get it the wrong way around. That is kind of be a good Christian to show that you are, and then you might be saved. No, no, no. It's trust Jesus, and you are saved, and he will bear out his fruit in you. The link between these two things, having received the mercy of God and showing the mercy of God, is held together quite well by the lady I quoted at the very beginning, Teresa Morgan, the Greco-Roman professor of Oxford University. I think I've used this quote before last year, but I use it again. She says this, Christians are taught that God loves them absolutely, and that on that basis they can trust in God, they can love God, and because such an abundance of love uh, uh, yeah, because of such an abundance of love, they can afford to love one another with enormous, unreserved generosity. That is a completely different model of relations with your fellow human beings and how your relationship with God affects your relationship with human beings from anything in ancient religious thinking in general, apart from Judaism. As I've already shown, and as she will labor, much that Jesus speaks to, James speaks to about our love for the poor hinges off God's character shown throughout the Old Testament, through Judaism. Friends, as we have been loved absolutely, do we not have this enormous capacity to also love generously? To not worry about ourselves, but to care for those around us. 
Now, we are all guilty of some kind of partiality as we look to James 2. The more I do, the more I lead, the more I see this at work in my life. The solution is to keep looking to Jesus, to looking at His unreserved, extraordinarily generous mercy and love, that as we look to Him in faith and repentance, the same would flow from us. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you know that? For as much as you have fallen short, mercy triumphs over judgment. So that leads us to a faith that works. James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? And he gives this example. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. The Christian church has modelled, at times, and certainly not always, this faith in Jesus, the same Jesus who cared for those around him with great compassion. Uh, do you remember that time when, uh, when thousands gathered around Jesus to hear him preach? For that is why he came. He came to preach the kingdom of God. And one of the ways that Mark describes that very moment, the very heart of Jesus, is he had compassion on the crowd, for they were a shepherd without a sheep. And so what does he do next? Oh, he just keeps talking to them. No, he cares for them out of his compassion. He takes kind of a lowly breakfast of kind of a bit of bread and some fish and feeds 5,000. <laughs> he uses the very power of God to demonstrate his care and compassion. And so too through the early church, we find examples like Justin Martyr, uh, a, a great leader of the early church. Uh, he described the kind of the basic kind of, uh, you know, what happened in an early church service, uh, reading and teaching from the scriptures, uh, the breaking of bread, public prayer, and collection for those in need, almsgiving, kind of to use the old word. That was baked in to, to how the church met. From the very beginning, they cared for those around them. Uh, in 250 uh, AD, the church in Rome had a daily food roster of 1,500 widows and people in distress. That's lar larger, I'm told, than the largest artisan society of the time. What an artisan society of 1,500 widows and people in distress. The church cared for those around them. Later, in the third century, you might have heard of the Cyprian Plague. Uh, it was probably quite similar to Ebola, if not Ebola. Uh, it was devastating, as you could imagine. We've just been through a horrendous uh, kind of outbreak of COVID. Uh, but with all our modern medicine and our ability to communicate and kind of to isolate and practice all kinds of things, we're able to do things that they were not able to do in the third century. And so what were their options? Many of them fled. Anyone who was uh, even presumed to have this plague was left in the streets. Family would, ab would abandon them. But this is what uh, uh, the bishop uh, was, uh, bishop of, uh, the Cyprian bishop was, uh, was quoted as, um, uh, I've forgotten actually who wrote this. Uh, this was actually from a historian reflecting on how the Christian church acted during this. 
Our brethren, for the most part, were careless of themselves and with exceeding love and filial kindness clung to one another, visiting the sick without regard to the danger, diligently ministering to them, tending to them in Christ. Being infected with a disease from others, they drew upon themselves the sickness of their neighbours, willingly taking over their pains. In this manner, the best at any rate of our brethren departed this life, including certain presbyters and deacons and some of the laity. Do you want a witness to the world that was? That while the rest of the world fled, Christians ran towards for the sake of caring for their neighbour. Not all Christians, but it was a great testimony. Today, there are many Christian organisations like Compassion continuing to hold out this care, this, this faith that works. A number of years ago, my wife and I actually got to visit our uh, sponsor child from Compassion in Bolivia. Uh, it was an incredible moment, actually, to, to see the, um, uh, the, the community that Compassion had invested in, to visit our sponsor child, Daniel, uh, and to see the kind of school he was uh, growing up in and, uh, and the way that um, this little community was caring for people in the name of Jesus. Uh, we were told quite strictly uh, not to eat any of the food, but this particular uh, El Alto city in, in uh, Bolivia, not known for its kind of uh, you know, high-quality water. Um, and so there we are sitting with Daniel, his family, and, uh, and others, and everyone's kind of, you know, there's two white people in the middle of this kind of community, and everyone's kind of, you know, gathered around, and they serve a salad that had just been washed in water and a whole bunch of other things. And Kel and I look at each other, and we're like, well, <laughs> uh, may God protect us. And he did. <laughs> but it was a wonderful moment, and I look forward to hearing from Teresa shortly. But as I come back to the beginning of this sermon, and as I look to how Christians have made a great impact on this world as they've shown the love of Christ, the heart of God, in caring for others. Let me also come back to the moment where I said sometimes it's a great confusion as to what must I do to be saved? Do I have to do all these good works? Let me finish with some words from John Calvin. At the heart of our Reformation, we are a Protestant church here, uh, and, and split from kind of the mainstream Catholic church, around issues like this because of confusion about how we are saved. He says this in a commentary in Ezekiel, faith can be no more separated from works than the sun from its heat. I love that. Yet, faith justifies without works because works form no reason for our justification, but faith alone reconciles us to God. We sang that song at the beginning today, nothing in my hand I bring. There is nothing you can do to be reconciled to God. There is no good works that you can hold before him and say, look, I did it. <laughs> because God knows your heart and you have fallen short. But Jesus has per perfectly lived out the righteous life, perfectly lived out what it was to depend on God the Father in a way that we have not. And it's only as we trust in him his life lived for us, his death died for us, that we might be forgiven, that we might be shown mercy. And as we bask in the brilliance of that, in the sweet balm of the grace of Jesus, may it fill us to overflowing so that we might live out the very heart of God and that, God might, that people might see our good works and give glory to God and find the same grace that we have been filled with. Let me pray.
Father, continue to shape us and mould us into the very heart of you that we have seen in the Lord Jesus, who served us, who became poor, who died on a cross for us. May we too be humble servants as we look to our humble Saviour. Father, we do this to honour you and also ask that through us that we might serve those who are less fortunate and hold out the grace of Jesus to a world in need. Amen.